This is the Rocky Mountain Review Podcast. I am your co-host, Gabe Peterson. And I'm your other co-host, Julia Badalese. This is the Rocky Mountain Review, the live news show that airs 4 to 5, Tuesday and Thursday, on KCSU that has turned into a podcast. And this is what you missed this week. Gabe Peterson, my co-host. Hi, Julia. Um, and we are also joined in studio by Joe Von Fisher. Is that correct? Okay. That's I was correct. like, I know I know the name, but and then I started talking and then it was gone. Uh, <laughs> we are also in here with JD Layton. Um, I practically live here except for last Thursday. Is, yep, this is true. Um, and Seth Boding. I live here occasionally. <laughs> Alrighty. <laughs> Um, anyway, just to give a quick rundown of the show, um, we have um, the interview with Jovan Fisher coming up soon, as well as an interview with Justin Michael. Then we'll be going into local news. Uh, we're going to talk about some pot sales. And then we'll go into sports with our uh, with Bjorn Larson, our sports reporter. After that, we have national news with, um, let's see, we have a story on Rob Porter, as well as Purdue Pharma, um, who was talking about uh, Oxy- Oxycontin. Uh, then we have our music segment done by our external music director um, Monty Daniel then we got the weed segment coming up later and uh, everyone's favorite segment weather yeah <laughs> anyway let's get into the interview um, Joe Von Fisher do you mind telling us your um, my name it's Joe Von Fisher <laughs> <laughs> um, and you're from the biology department right I am I'm yeah. a professor in the biology department here at CSU been around since 2003 mm. which is not before you were born, but close, right? <laughs> uh, about like, eight. I was eight. Okay. That's about, wait, That's you said 2003? Yeah. All right, six, six years off. <laughs> six years. Okay. Yes. You guys were old timers by then. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so we were. We actually have you on today because there was a recent source article about your team that was able to develop some technology to detect natural gas leaks. Is that right? That's correct. It's been a great project. Um, yeah, so can you tell us like what started the research on developing this technology? Well, um, I mean, everyone has a favorite gas, right? My favorite gas <laughs> is methane. That's maybe most people's favorite gas, if you really think about it. Um, and uh, I'm a biologist by training. I got my undergrad degree in biology, and I really have kind of been interested in the, the organisms that produce and consume methane. My overall science is, is in ecosystem ecology, and, and the research works like uh, I'm interested in what are the physical and biological processes that regulate the emission of gases like methane between the land surface and the atmosphere. So we're doing our methane stuff. And then, um, I mean, do you want the whole backstory? I could spend like a couple minutes on that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, tell us about long. it. Go into it. So, uh, so around 2007, there's this innovation in laser absorption spectroscopy, which is the idea that you <laughs> wow. can use lasers to shine light through a path, so path of air, and then you can measure how much laser light is missing. And greenhouse gases, the whole idea of the way they work is that they really strongly absorb infrared light. Hmm. So if you use an infrared laser, you shine it through the air, you see how much light's miss, uh, missing in a certain color that's absorbed by the methane molecule. You could tell with incredible precision um, how what the concentration is of methane. So these things started coming on the market. I'm an early adopter, so I buy one of these things and <laughs> take it up to the Arctic tundra. We measure emissions of methane off the tundra surface. It was really cool. Got some papers out of that. Brought it back to Fort Collins, and we're like, what are we going to do with this amazing device? It's like the size of two suitcases powered by a generator. It's not it's not exactly portable, but it's movable. It's not right? a point laser. It's not like <laughs> that at all. Yeah, it's a, it's a big box, and inside is some tubes and some lasers and... No sharks, but it's pretty cool. So <laughs> we took this thing around Fort Collins, and we're measuring um, methane concentrations around town, and we find that there is uh, 
uh, high, really high concentrations of methane near a brewery, which shall not be named. And um, <laughs> and so we call up this brewery and say, hey, guys, you know you got a lot of methane. And they're like, oh, my God. You know, so we brought the analyzer over there. We we showed them where the methane was coming from. And we they sealed down some some flanges that were leaking. And we, re- we reduced methane emission. And that was mm. like revolutionary for me. So it's the first time I've ever actually done something about human greenhouse gas emissions. Like yeah. I study it as this esoteric phenomenon. The emissions from the tundra are enormous, but we actually reduce methane emissions there. Hmm. So I'm telling the story to this guy from the Environmental Defense Fund who was on campus, and um, he's like, oh, we should talk more. We're developing this new collaboration with Google and Google Street View cars, and we have these methane analyzers we want to put in there. We need a scientist to help us figure out, basically, if you drive with a Google Street View car and you have this analyzer in the back, What's the information content of the data that you gather? And so that's where we came in. We um, were funded by the Environmental Defense Fund to, to conduct the research on how to deploy these Google Street View cars and to look for, of all things, natural gas. So natural gas, as you may or may not know, is 99% methane. And then mm-hmm. there's some other hydrocarbons in there. And methane is a really potent greenhouse gas. And so if we can find where it's leaking from the distribution systems that bring natural gas to people's homes, then it's a huge win. Um, if we can sort of cost-effectively just zoom these cars through the street, find where the gas is coming from, we can help the utilities pinpoint the leaks and fix them. That's super cool. This well, was uh, this was in New York City though that you did this, right? This most recent. Yeah, but that was like our fifteenth city. Oh wow! So really? if you were to do a Google search for EDF methane maps, then you come up with the website, <laughs> and um, and you can see all the different cities we've worked in. We've worked in Staten Island and Syracuse and Burlington, Vermont, Boston, Dallas, uh, parts of Los Angeles. You know, we've That's been crazy. everywhere. In the words of Johnny Cash, <laughs> yeah, we've been all over the country. So the new thing in New York City, if you want me to talk about that, is yeah. is just. What New York City had is that they knew that they have these leaks that are going on in their system. And it's so there's some natural gas leaks that are going to, of course, be like kaboom kind of problems, right? If it mm-hmm. leaks into a, an enclosed space, it gets ignited, explosion bad, right? But there are other <laughs> leaks that happen in the, in the lines underneath the street. And if that gas just goes straight up fr- through the street, through the asphalt, cracks up in the atmosphere, it's considered a non-hazardous leaks, leak. Mm. And there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these around the country. And so what we wanted to be able to do was say, well, we recognize that maybe you don't need to fix all of them. It's not cost effective. But if we could figure out which ones are the biggest ones and mm. comprising the most emissions from the city, then we can help you do your repairs and target them on that. So that's what we helped the utility in New York City do, was to find which of their known leaks had the highest leak rate. And then they went out and fixed them. And they really cut their their emissions down by that. So that's the benefit of driving around in a streetcar, Google streetcar, and you can just kind of go past those places and have those lasers bring in what is the the worst leaks in that kind yeah, of area. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's the idea. They, they do that already, but they have technology that's not as sensitive as these laser-based analyzers. It's therefore not as cool, but really also not <laughs> as sensitive. And, um, and so what our contribution was is that you could just zoom around with these cars, um, and then you not only tell where the leaks are, but, but the way that we developed some data analytics. Um, I have colleagues colleagues here, it's been a team effort. And one of my colleagues is an atmospheric physicist, Jay mm. Ham, um, and then another is a computer science scientist, Sangmi Palakara, and we all work together to develop how to interpret this data in light of leak size. And so we figured out how to how to get that data or that information from the from the from zooming around with the cars in the different streets. Have you done anything in Colorado, and how how does that compare to New York? Well, we we've driven around uh, Fort Collins. We um, we haven't like published any maps of Fort Collins or of Denver like we like we have from other cities. Mm-hmm. But of course, we've driven around Fort Collins, and Fort Collins is a pretty tight city, um, and so there aren't a lot of natural gas leaks here. You find them more in old cities. It used to be that they would funnel all the gas through these big uh, cast iron pipes, and if you've ever dug a rusty nail out of your garden, you know what happens when you bury iron in the ground for a long period of time. 
And so there are 70, 80, 100-year-old pipes that are just corroded and rusty and crappy. And it's like <laughs> blowing air through a flute, you know. And then if you go to places like Boston or New York City uh, or other places in the country where they haven't updated their infrastructure, then it's just really crappy. And then there's just a bunch of leaks all the way down there. So mm. what we can also do is is bring visualization to an environmental problem that's otherwise invisible. You know, people aren't noticing that, there's, that this needs infrastructure repair. They're like, why does my gas bill keep going up? <laughs> well, it's because it costs money to take care of the infrastructure that carries mm. the gas to your house. And you'll be happier, trust me, if, all, if the leaks are fixed. That, that was really interesting. It is fascinating. <laughs> it is. I could fill an hour. I'm not sure what you have left planned for the show. <laughs> I'm, but I'm, it's a great problem. You have questions, but there's more that I could talk about. Like, no, I think you hit all of my questions, and I, I didn't really – I only asked you one of them. <laughs> right. So how do you – so you just fix infrastructure to fix fix these leaks? I mean, how do you go about that once you – like, once New York City knows, like, where the most problematic areas are, how do they go about fixing that? Well, you – I mean, anybody who's who's seen a, a backhoe in their, in their street knows what that's like. You know, you have to dig a hole. It goes down, you know, whatever, however far it is to the gas main. Usually those are three or four feet underground. And then it costs – between two and five grand, maybe as much as 15 grand in New York City, you know, to be able to do the excavation. In some cities, there's just a lot of layers of infrastructure you have to dig apart in order to get down to the gas mains. Um, Fort Collins isn't that bad. Many cities aren't that bad. But some cities like New York City, it's really expensive. And so if they're going to invest in replacing and repairing some of these, they want to know which ones are the big leakers. Okay. Yeah. So it's the government that fixes it. It's not like individual residents who can go oh, in their backyard. Oh, no, no. For <laughs> okay. sure not residents. And the utility is not a government agency. It's a company. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they, anyway, so they're the ones who are actually doing the repairs. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was fascinating. I know. I, especially when you talk about it that, that excitedly. I feel like I was like, oh. And I just I'm started learning. this cup of coffee, you guys. <laughs> I've, so. I've never come across anybody who, who fights pollution with lasers. Yeah. Let alone lasers strapped to cars. I know. It's Let alone lasers that they tested in the Arctic tundra. What a what a wild ride. It, it is a phenomenally <laughs> exciting area. But I don't know if you know, I was asking earlier about restaurant reviews. You know, if you guys do restaurant. I recently um, there's this new restaurant on the moon. Have you heard about this place? The moon. Yeah. There's it's uh, the food is amazing, but there is no atmosphere. Oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> All right. My that's guess. gonna come to an end. <laughs> And we're done. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, guys. This yeah, was a joy. Yeah, thank, thank you, you very so much. much. More to talk on. about next time. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. All right. Well, we are going to go on a really quick break here, but uh, stay tuned. We'll ha- we have another interview coming up next. Um, yeah, you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review, only here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Hey everyone, I'm Nick Baker. And I'm Brian Buck. Join the conversation Fridays from 7 to 9 on Ramblers. The cornerstone of CSU Sports Talk Radio. Only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. (laughs) Only here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Gabe Peterson, one of two co-hosts. I'm joined with my other co-host, Julia Badalese. That's me. Where's the other one? (laughs) Okay. Anyways, (laughs) we are joined in studio now with Justin Michael. How are you doing, Justin? Good, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. We have J.D. Layton, our national news correspondent. I am always here. And we have our field reporter, Seth Bodine. I'm here, too. Yes. uh, Good to see you. Anyways, we're going to jump into an interview with Justin Michael now. You are a freelance reporter for 
CSU Collegian, Denver Post, right? All those. Yeah, definitely. I just cover CSU athletics for a variety of publications, as well as you know Colorado preps and anything else. Basically, I can get paid to write about. Yeah, very <laughs> nice. So the interview today is going to be about the Larry Eustacey investigation. Uh, you were the first person to actually break that news, weren't you? Yeah, we're going on about. I guess it would be about two weeks ago now. I was the first reporter to you know, initially put out there that Larry Eustacey was being investigated by athletic director Joe Parker. So what prompted the investigation? Yeah, um, so what initially, while CSU has not specifically commented on any instances or given us any details on exactly why they decided to look into him now, uh, through reporting and talking to some of the inside sources, we've been able to gather um, that what ultimately caused Eustacey to be investigated were two incidents. Uh, one of them took place about a month ago at, uh, at Moby Arena. Larry Eustacey kind of laid into one of his players on the sideline, so much so that that player actually kind of teared up, um, and it resulted in one of the prime uh, boosters to stand up and kind of tell Eustacey, like, back off. Wow, um, and I don't know if Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with the world of college athletics, but that's really oh, uncommon that's huge. to have, you know somebody who's providing money to stand up and stand up against an official in a public setting for the way he's behaving. The other incident happened behind closed doors. Uh, it regarded Eustacey, another kind of verbal tirade. He went after a player. He didn't like the way he's been playing, told him basically, like, if you don't change, maybe you might as well leave. That player's parent ended up calling Joe Parker, and that resulted, you know, in this ultimate investigation. Okay. Hmm. Um it kind of seems like Eustacey has like a little bit of a repetitive behavior when it comes to coaching. I mean, why has there, why has this been the first investigation in the past four years? Because he was investigated 2013, 2014 season. Why is it just popping up now? That's kind of what's been the weirdest thing about this whole situation is that I don't think that Eustacey's behavior this season has necessarily been any different than it has throughout his tenure at Colorado State. Yeah, I mean, I've been to games I've seen in the past three years. I feel like he's always kind of been. Uh, on a tyrant every single game on the sideline. Yeah, that's it's one of those things where I think public pressure is probably putting a lot of attention on it as before. CSU has completely closed practices. The media were not allowed to witness what goes on in there. Obviously, you know, we'd heard rumblings for years about the way he acts in there, but nobody had any definitive proof. This was kind of the first time that you know, people from outside the locker room were able to gather with you know, some certainty that this is going on. And that public pressure is a big deal, as we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. So he hasn't been fired yet, has he? At this point, he is not. Uh, Matt Stevens of the Denver Post reported about, I believe it about six days ago, that CSU was preparing to move on from Eustacey at this time. CSU has not commented on that, or they, they have not agreed to that at this point. Um, but all signs kind of indicate to the fact that they're looking to move on from Eustacey. So... Is that because of his buyout clause? Because if they fire him now, they're going to have to pay him a couple million dollars. Is, are, they, are they trying to sort that out? Is that kind of the initial report on that? Yeah, the contract is, I think, the biggest holdup by far. Without proper cause, if CSU were to terminate Eustacey at this moment, they would owe him around $3 million for the remaining three years of his deal. Which is a lot of money. It's a ton of money. I mean, obviously, it's a, a federal institution. $3 million doesn't seem that much, but this is an athletic department that has been spending a significant amount of money, you know, not just on basketball, football, soccer, a variety of programs over the last couple of years trying to raise their status. So this isn't exactly a situation where they have, you know, in three million just lying around. Yeah, absolutely. So Steve Barnes, the assistant 
head coach, correct? Is that was that his title? He got released from the team too. Is there any reason for that? Is he because it says his style is very similar to you, Stacy? Is that kind of the reason why? Yeah, the Steve Barnes situation might be the most interesting part of this. He's a guy who has coached with Eustacey for 26 years. He's been an assistant on every single one of Eustacey's five Division I head coaching stops. Uh, he's now coached with him consecutively since 2002 at Iowa State. When Eustacey was suspended for his behavior at Iowa State, Barnes was who ultimately took over for him back then, and then he ended up getting suspended there as well. Wow. Uh, so these are, these are two guys who are well-documented with their relationship. While CSU hasn't commented on any specifics with him either, his behavior and his relationship are kind of well-documented with Eustacey. He's a guy who's known for being much more vocal in practice. While Eustacey's kind of been under more attention the last couple of years, I think Barnes has you know, allegedly been the guy who's come in and been maybe more the screamer and in-your-face type. He's kind of like... Essentially, he's he's here to have you, Stacy's back. Okay, so they kind of have like a duality kind of between yeah, the two. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so my next question, in your opinion, like what's next for the team? I mean, the past couple of years have been kind of controversial for him. They had Gene Clavell and his girlfriend and that whole situation, and then now you know, uh, Larry Stacy and Steve Barnes are both going to get fired potentially. We don't know that yet. Um, but what do you think's next for them? How do how do they fix their image in the public's eye? Yeah, this is a program that desperately needs some good PR at the moment. You brought up the incident with Gian Clavel last year. They also had three players get suspended halfway through the season for being academically ineligible. That's right. Uh, so this is just you know a program who has had to deal with issue after issue over the last couple of years. I think moving forward, CSU's ultimate goal is going to be, one, to create stability, Yeah. and two, to find a guy that can kind of change the image of what CSU basketball is. You have two programs right now. Uh, Collegian sports reporter Luke Zalman actually wrote a great column about this. You can check it out on collegian.com. Um, you have two basketball programs at CSU that basically couldn't be any further from each other right now. You have the women's program, which has won four consecutive Mountain West championships, led by Ryan Williams, a guy who's beloved by the community, great figure, you know, stunning reputation. And then you have the basketball situation with Larry Eustacey. Mm -hmm. He's being investigated for, you know, a verbal abuse for the second time in five years. Mm. I've never heard of a Division One coach surviving two separate investigations. Yeah, no, neither have I. Um, so you kind of just said they have to find the right guy who can kind of change the culture. My last question to you is: Is Jason Hurl the next head coach of the CSU men's basketball team? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm sure he would love that. Uh, Jace is a he's a guy who he doesn't have a ton of experience. He's only 30 years old. This oh, is wow. his second year at CSU. Prior to that, he spent five years as an assistant at the JUCO level. Um, you know, I, I if I was a betting man, I, I would say probably not, just because lack of experience tends to be a really big factor in these types of big coaching decisions. Mm -hmm. But you know, the teams rallied under him. In the one game he's been coached, they scored. The season high, 90 points. They played their most efficient basketball. So if they make a run here at late in the year, maybe make a run at the NCAA tournament in Las Vegas, then you know all bets are off. Yeah, I mean they won that game just hours after they found out Steve Barnes was being dismissed, right? Yeah, they the team was told at about 9:30 that morning that Barnes was being placed on leave and that Hurl would be stepping up. They tipped off against 
San Jose State that afternoon. So. Oh, okay, cool. Well, Justin, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, I think that's going to wrap up the interview. Uh, I appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break here at the yeah. Rocky Mountain Review. We'll be coming back here with uh, local news and sports uh, again, basically. Yeah. Uh, so stay tuned. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review only here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Um, we're going to get into some local news. I'm going to actually start off by sending it over to Seth. Sure. So uh, on Sunday, two people died after a head, head-on crash uh, in Fort Collins. Um, the victim kill, was killed in the accident uh, were 32-year-old Tracy Salazar and her young 7-year-old daughter, Alika Salazar. Uh, according to the Loveland Herald, the crash happened when Salazar's Pontiac Vibe crossed over the median and struck a truck traveling in the oncoming direction. The crash took place on Harmony Road near Front Range Community College. During the investigation, Harmony Road was closed for about five hours between Lark Bunting Drive and Starflower Drive. Investigators, who are still working to determine the cause of the crash, used an unmanned aerial drone to map the scene of the crash. Another crash was reported in Greeley Saturday night. The crash happened roughly at 7 p.m. near 16th Street and U.S. Highway 85. Officials said that a 1999 Honda Civic was traveling southbound, crossed into the northbound lanes, and collided with a 2003 Honda Pilot. According to Fox 31 Denver, the four occupants of the Honda Pilot were transported to an area hospital. Two of the passengers were taken into surgery and are in serious condition. Greeley police said the initial reports indicate that a baby may have been ejected from the pilot. The child was taken to a children's hospital for head injuries. Police say that drivers need to remember to use caution and drive slower in inclement weather to prevent crashes when the roads aren't great. Yeah, there were a couple crashes. I think we were talking about it earlier. There yeah. was, it looked like there was also one in Loveland, like, I think maybe like 12 hours yeah. from each other, basically. The weather was pretty tumultuous over the weekend. Yeah, and the, the roads were not great. So yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm going to send it over to Gabe. We have some uh, some pot news. Yes, we do. Sure do. <laughs> Sorry. Anyways, according to the Colorado Department of Revenue, marijuana shops all across the state pulled in a record $1.5 billion worth of medical and recreational cannabis, edibles, and concentrate products in 2017. Fox 31 Denver reports that adult sales of marijuana topped $1.1 billion during the year, and the remaining $416 million came from the medical marijuana side. Fox 31 released data claiming that revenue from marijuana sales in the state of Colorado collected upwards of $247 million in taxes and fees. Since the legalization of pot, sales have increased annually, as in 2015, marijuana sale totals were $996 million, and in 2016, they topped $1.3 billion. Majority of these sales come from Denver, Denver metro suburban areas, but as the Denver Post reports, rural communities saw just as much success in their marijuana industry as, as rural, rural county Los Animinas County, with a small population of 14,000 people, led the state with more than $3,100 worth of recreational cannabis sold on average for every adult. Colorado Department of Revenue sales data and Colorado State Demography, Demography Office population estimated that Los Animas County led the state per capita with $3,100 of marijuana sales, 
followed by neighboring Castilla County at $1,000. Montezuma County, encompassing the Four Corners region, was fifth at $735 per adult. Man. That's crazy. $3,100 worth of uh, sales per adult in one county? That's impressive. That is impressive. Anyways, I'm going to send that back over to Julia for the last local story. Yeah. Um, a couple from Breckenridge, Colorado, leaving on a 28-foot sailboat, only made it a couple days on their trip to the Caribbean before their ship sank. Nikki Walsh and her boyfriend Tanner Broadwell, as well as their pug Remy, um, were headed to Key West when they hit something uh, in around 8 to 9 feet of water, causing water to spill overboard into their boat and filling the cabin, reports Joe Dalk and Christine Hobbit. Hobrich. Um, the couple had sold all their possessions uh, for the sailboat, but when the water started flooding the deck, they had no choice but to abandon ship with money, their IDs, and their dog, reports Ryan Miller of USA Today. Spending roughly $10,000 to buy the boat and get it up and running, it would take thousands more to get it out of the channel. They have not, however, given up on their dreams of sailing. Broadwell said that, um, that quote, the boat sank, but our dreams didn't sink with the boat. There's a GoFundMe page set up to help pay for the new boat for the couple. Which That's is, a real bummer. It is a real... They really... They honestly... $10,000. That's ten, a big event. I know. They sold, like, a lot of their stuff to get that, mm. and it was, like, they only got it two days. Oh. Yeah, boats are a risky investment for sure. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, they really sink a lot of money into that. Hey, we can't oh. hear you. You're not on a mic. We can't hear you. Um, anyway, we're going to go over to Bjorn for uh, sports. Yeah, uh, the Colorado State tennis team traveled to Las Vegas, Nevada last weekend, where they picked up two wins against UC Riverside and Youngstown State. In their final day of play, the Rams lost to UNLV Rebels in the first game of Mountain West play. Head coach Jared Camrata had this to say about the loss. Whenever you win more than you lose over a weekend, it's a good thing. UNLV showed us what we need to work on to get ready for our divisional opponents in the conference round and for the conference tournament. With no competition set for this weekend, the Rams will utilize the extra training time to prepare to play against Duke and Western Illinois in Des Moines, Iowa on February 23rd through the 24th. The Rams indoor track and field team was busy last weekend, splitting their team in half and sending their distance runners to Seattle, Washington for the Husky invite, while the rest of the team competed in Albuquerque, New Mexico. At the Husky invite, Grant Fisher scorched the competition in the 5,000 meters, where he also broke the program record. Fisher won the event with a time of 13.44. The record was previously held by Gerald Mock, who ran a 13.46 at the Husky Invitational in 2017. Grant really wanted that school record, distance coach Art Siemers said in a statement. He's never had a school record before. For a former walk-on to come out here in pretty much his one chance to get the school record, he just executed. The Colorado State hockey team got off to a fast start in the second game of a back-to-back series against rival University of Colorado on Saturday evening. The Rams got a quick goal but were unable to keep up with the Buffaloes scoring and lost 6-2. The Rams got their two goals from Austin Ansay and Leah Miller. CSU will be back in action Thursday, February 15th and Friday, February 16th as they travel to take on University of Jamestown in North Dakota. That wraps up your sports for today. Thanks. Thanks, Bjorn. Thank you, Bjorn. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we're going to jump into national and global news and then followed by our music segment by our own Monty Daniels. You've been listening to the Rocky Mountain Review only here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins.
and welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. Um, I'm Julia Battelise, one of your two co-hosts. Uh, the other one would be Gabe Peterson. That would, yes, hello. Yeah. <laughs> I took what you were going to say. Um, we have our national news correspondent, J.D. Layton, in here. I'm here. Yep. <laughs> on a mic. Uh, yeah, on, I, on a mic I, I actually time. have one now. <laughs> Congratulations, you've been promoted. Um, and we got Seth Bodine, our field reporter, in here as well. Hey. Hey. Um, well, we are going to get into national news. I'm going to throw it over to J.D. A Russian passenger jet crashed Sunday slightly after takeoff from Domodedevcha Airport in Moscow and killed all 71 passengers. The flight's original path was to the city of Oro on the border of Kazakhstan, but the flight disappeared off of radar very early into its, into its flight, reports Mary Alushina of CNN. Russian safety officials have launched an investigation into the crash and are using flight data as well as the black box which was recovered on Sunday. The plane was a Ukrainian Antonov AN-148, which have been critiqued by Russian air safety officials for reliability concerns. It is believed that the crash was caused by a pilot error, but its devastating wreckage is certain. Rescue workers responded to a grisly scene of plane debris and human body parts spread over an area with a one-kilometer radius. The crucial mistake that led to the untimely demise of the flight likely has to do with the pilot's failure to turn on a heating unit used to allow for accurate speed measurements, reports CNBC. The inaccurate data likely caused the plane's autopilot to misinterpret the plane's speed and altitude, causing the plane to plummet into Earth, ending the lives of 65 passengers and six crew members. Thank you, JD. Yeah. This is not a... It was a sad story. It was. I, I saw that while we were watching the Olympics. I was like checking out stories, and I saw that one. I was like, Ooh. wasn't there a story of a plane going missing last year? Uh, hit the ocean, and they n were never able to find it. Or something. Wasn't that like years the ago? The Malaysian was flight. It? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was from Malaysia. Yeah. That was like 2015. Oh. Yeah, that was like years ago. Wow. Felt like last year. Where have you been? <laughs> You're literally in the news. Like I feel year. like you'd be more informed. <laughs> I. Whoa. The year's He's fired. calling you okay. out. <laughs> Should I leave? <laughs> oh, goodness. Back all over right. to you, Julia. Thanks. Um, all right. Well, the woman, the women who spoke out about abuse allegedly sustained from ex-husband and former White House aide Rob Porter have, a, have openly criticized the administration's handling of the situation. Porter's second wife, Jenny Willoughby, uh, released an op-ed in The Times on Saturday, and her first wife... Um, Oh, and his first wife, Colby Holderness, was interviewed by ABC's Mark Osborne on Monday, both expressing their dismay with the dis uh, diminishing tone of Trump's comments and those of his staff. Holderness was particularly disappointed by the responses by Kellyanne Conway and Sarah Huckabee Sanders, saying, quote, while I cannot say I'm surprised, I expected a woman to do better. She said that Conway's comments that White House communications director and Porter's current girlfriend, Hope Hicks, is not in danger of being abused by him because she is, quote, so strong with such excellent instincts, unfairly implies that people who suffer abuse are not strong. Willoughby said on CNN that, quote, if Porter ha hasn't already been abusive with Hope, he will. Both women discussed how the responses by the administration were designed to make the American people discredit them and make them feel ashamed or even crazy for sharing their stories. Uh, Willoughby suggested in her op-ed that the issue is larger than the tone in the White House, saying it is a societal issue. Willoughby said society has a whole, um, as a whole has a fear of addressing our worst secrets and that, quote, society as a whole doesn't acknowledge the reality of, of abuse. Both Willoughby and Holderness talked about the feeling of losing self-esteem and a sense of trust in oneself in the face of abuse in a society that does not address it. Holderness said, 
at the end of her relationship with Porter. She felt like an empty shell of her former self, but went on to say, even if the administration and Porter himself denied that abuse, Willoughby and I know what happened. Um, Willoughby questioned how stories of abuse are to be heard when the leader of the free world openly denies them. She wrote, quote, in light of the president's and White House's continued dismissal of the allegations, I assure you my truth has not been diminished. She finished her op-ed with a message to people experiencing abuse, saying, quote, it is real. You're not crazy. You are not alone. I believe you. Powerful. I know. Um, anyway, I'm going to send it back over to Gabe. Well, thank you, Julia. Prosecutors in New York State have filed a lawsuit against the Weinstein Company. The lawsuit alleges that Weinstein's studio failed to take proper action to protect staff from Weinstein himself. BBC News reports that the announcement of the lawsuit was made on Sunday against Weinstein, Weinstein's company, and his brother Robert, who is a co-founder. New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman made an announcement to the press stating employees of Harvey Weinstein endured, quote, pervasive sexual harassment, intimidation, and discrimination, Tim Stello of NBC News reports. Weinstein's company board of directors commented on the matter, saying, Many of the allegations relating to the board are inaccurate, and the board looks forward to bringing the facts to light as part of its ongoing commitment to resolve this difficult situation in the most appropriate way, BBC News reports. Stello reports that according to the suit, Weinstein actually threatened to kill employees along with their families. In one instance, it alleged that he said to the Secret Service, said that his Secret Service contacts could, quote, take care of the problems and used female employees to facilitate sexual conquest of vulnerable women. BBC News also reports the lawsuit is following a four-month investigation into Weinstein. It cites an array of conduct, which includes verbal threats, demand of sexual favors, and much more. So just another... What a terrible person. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's... But anyways, we are going to move on to JD for our final national story. Yeah. Purdue Pharma, the pharmaceutical company that owns the drug OxyContin, announced that they would no longer be promoting that drug. Physicians have been persuaded for years to push OxyContin to their patients, contributing to the rise of the opioid ep epidemic in the U.S. to take over 42,000 lives in 2016 alone. Yesterday, the order was to go into effect to cut down on sales staff and stop promoting the drug to healthcare professionals, reports John Bacon of USA Today. Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill described the companies like Purdue Pharma to be like cheerleaders for opioids. The medical director at a detox program at the Center for Network Therapy in New Jersey, Indra Sadami, said that cutting down on the supply of opioids may not be as beneficial as we think. Bacon also reports that Sadami said that drug dealers may become a more prominent issue because they could turn out more pills that look like the branded prescription meds but can be more dangerous. The president, back in October, has declared the opioid epidemic to be a public health emergency. Purdue, Pharma, Purdue Pharma's announcement will hopefully alleviate the problem, though it was stated that they are not stopping the sales of OxyContin, simply not marketing as much to physicians as they have in the past. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like odd because it seems like it's like a good thing, but I can't tell if it is. Cause I, it seems like they're just trying to cover their butts as, as like this is coming in, but they're totally not stopping the sales. Yeah. I mean, you can't really stop the sales of OxyContin, but you can stop, you can enforce stricter ways and how to get that depending on your like medical condition. Yeah, I, I'm glad that they're not advertising and like sort of using it as a push to like uh, doctors and stuff like that. Yeah. Because that, 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 like, has always been a problem. Like, what? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, you know, like you said, the real risk now is, like, 
uh, drug dealers kind of creating like fentanyl and those kind of drugs, well, yeah, to which exactly. is pretty much a hundred times more effective and powerful as Oxycontin, but um, very high risk of overdosing in. Yeah. Anyways, moving on, we are going to go into our music segment with uh, Monty Daniels. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, we're going to go straight into that. This is our Rocky Mountain music segment only here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. My go-to album lately has been Turn Out the Lights by Julian Baker, and for a lot of reasons. Being only 22 years old, Baker is relatively new to the music industry. With her age being so close to college students, she understands the disorder and turmoil that goes through one's mind at this time in our lives. Specifically, in Appointments, the first song released from this album, she says in a Pitchfork article, the song is about isolation of thinking that you're incapable of communicating the emotions in your head, while you're also trying to exert the effort to be there for someone else and to be what they want. premise for all of Turn Out the Lights, overcoming and dealing with issues such as mental health in both herself and others. She goes on to say, the existence of anxiety or depression does not negate my own capacity for joy or my intelligence. This album is not merely just sad, but instead is a musical diary documenting Baker's progress towards getting better and her realizations along the way. She explains that over the past years of getting to a healthier place, it's been important for me to get rid of my really finite standard of normalcy and understand that maybe the bad and ugly things are part of me, but I don't have to submit to them. The song Hurt Less is an airy, violin-heavy tune about not caring enough about herself to fiddle with wearing a seatbelt. No, I didn't see the point in trying to save myself from an accident. If somebody's gonna help me watch this fabric gonna help. It presents a progression from the beginning to the end, with her realization that even if she thinks she doesn't need to save herself, there's other people in her life that care and want to provide her with resources. With the rise of mental health issues occurring more and more at younger ages, Turn Out the Lights is a statement about getting and accepting help and knowing that it's okay to reach out. For the Rocky Mountain Review, I'm Monty Daniel. KCSU is supported by Washington's and Fort Collins, now open this month. Upcoming shows include Devochka on Valentine's Day and Carl Denson's Tiny Universe on February 16th. Tickets and info can be found at washingtonsfoco.com.
Welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. <laughs> Only here on 90.5 KCSU4 Collins. We come back with a screech. <laughs> we come back was, with a screech. That was my bad. I That's was okay. moving my mic. I, I that was. not think it would let out robot screams. <laughs> and that is, of course, J.D. Layton, our national news correspondent. <laughs> and Julia Battelise, my co-host. That's me. And Seth Bodine, our field reporter. Hey, I'm so, adjusting my mic quietly. That's okay. <laughs> We are going to jump into a little mini roundtable segment. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the marijuana industry and how it has topped its record sales. Um, I think the most interesting thing is ever since it was passed, year by year, you're seeing it go up hundreds of millions of dollars. 2016, it was $996 million in sales. 2017, one point, or 2015, I'm sorry, 996. 2016, um, 1.3. Now it's 1.5 in 2017. Is this a good thing for Colorado? Well, I think from the point of like generation of like public revenue, this is a huge, huge boost to like Colorado. It it allows like this enormous flux of of you know money that we didn't really have access to before. I think on the other side though, there's uh, there's always going to be like the fear that like oh maybe this could be people are consuming more marijuana than they have before, or maybe people are consuming marijuana and along with other things they're just using it a lot more and a lot more frequently is it does it have like any other potential things that could go along with it which is still stuff that we're we're sort of trying yeah. to figure out as, we're still on the trial basis kind of an experimental along. phase but you know you said you know we're pulling in this revenue 250 million dollars in 2017 in taxes is not bad not too shabby That's, not to mention i mean uh one point uh 1.1 billion out of the 1.5 uh, just came from strictly recreational sales with taxes. And then the other 416 came from <laughs> medicinal sales where there's really no tax on that because it's pretty much just like the markup of what it is, you know. But I think that that's a super interesting statistic that's saying more than, I mean, I'm not a math whiz, but I'm going to say that that's probably <laughs> over 80% recreational sales. And that's pretty that's a pretty staggering number in my eyes at that's, least. That's a lot of people who would rather uh, – well, I, I don't know if they would rather, but they're definitely they're consuming a lot of marijuana. Yeah. Like that is, <laughs> I mean, yeah, just a county of fourteen thousand people, thirty one hundred dollars per is, person on average buys weed. That's that's a lot of sales. That's a that's pretty much a weekly stop to the dispensary, and you're spending upwards of fifty bucks every every single time you go. I'm really quick gonna just uh, tell our listeners <clears throat> if you want to tell us your uh, your habits, um, if if you would like to, we yeah, will obviously in. keep it anonymous. Um, that number is nine seven zero four nine one five two seven eight. One more time, nine seven zero four nine one KCSU. If you want to get involved in this conversation, but I think the one thing that you said earlier, JD, is um, are people consuming more weed, marijuana, all that kind of stuff? There are problems, you know, with legalization and as we see in Colorado uh, because weed is just so accessible to people in Colorado teenagers the use of cocaine and use of um, Xanax and prescription pills that is also going up too so I think that it's great that we're bringing in all this money and I'm absolutely for this kind of sales and this revenue that we're bringing in but there are domino effects to allowing teenagers or not teenagers can't buy you have to be 21 but I mean, anybody who's been in high school knows that you can probably get in. It's probably easier now. So there, there is like a catch-22 to everything you do, good or bad. Yeah, sure. and, and, and I, I don't know if we necessarily have like all the data to like s suppose like a definite correlation, like one causes the other. And I think the, to some extent there's probably push and pull in both directions. I think by having uh, like marijuana legalized, you definitely pull away from like opioid abuse and things like that. And you definitely have a lot of uh, push for that. But I, I also don't know like what that means for like 
maybe marijuana is not enough for you. Maybe you want, you're looking for other types of things, or maybe marijuana is not as attractive as a drug as it used to be. It's yeah. Like, there's, there's not that there's, I'm going to get in trouble aspect. Really yeah. Anymore. It, it's more like the, I'm going to go drink some lean with the boys yeah. on a, on a Saturday type of thing. <laughs> Rather than like, oh, me and my friends are going to go smoke a J or some, something yeah. stupid like that. It's it's like maybe it's lost. It's sort of, for lack of a better term, it's sexy factor. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. now promoting more dangerous drugs. Yeah. That, no, that makes sense. I know may, what you're trying maybe, to say. Maybe that's just like my thought process. But it's like I definitely have a lot less stigma towards marijuana than I did before it was legal. Like. It's the devil's lettuce. Now it's like, ah, it's just something people do. Yeah. They, they're just fine. They just like to eat a lot. Yeah, there's a dispensary right down the street, you know. But I, the, the most recent kind of news with uh, the marijuana industry is San, or San Diego and San Francisco and now Denver, they're thinking about releasing people that have been convicted of marijuana charges, nonviolent marijuana charges, just asking around the room, because weed is legal and we're seeing that it's a billion-dollar industry in one state alone – it, do you think it's a good idea to release the 40 people that Governor Hickenlooper wants to release based on just having like an eighth on them back in 2005 when that was illegal and they're serving time for that? I th- in my personal opinion is if you're a nonviolent committer of a marijuana charge um, and you go through the process of like whatever process that would be, um, I think it's a good idea to maybe release those people. Yeah, I'd, I'd let those guys out, especially since it's like it's it's legal now. It's like, oh, sorry, we kind of caught you guys. I mean, you have to look at like what they – you know, if they if they were mass selling this, then that's yeah. obviously like a very federal offense. These guys have like 140 kilos that right. they've been shuffling from Mexico to Denver. Yeah, they probably should be in jail. But I when you you know you just look at the statistics, like you know if you're an African American, you're three times more likely to get arrested for a weed charge as you were a white man. And Hispanics are at about like two percent more likely. So you know when you start looking at those statistics, maybe yeah. you need to take into account maybe those people should not be in prison, especially when it's overcrowded. And, you know, the taxpayer pays for everything that they get while in prison. Right. I I think now it's more of a focus on um, whether or not they're selling legally. Uh, I've been seeing a lot of stories specifically in California with growers that aren't following the rules. And then uh, they send people and just like grab all of it, take all of it. Um, So I think that. Now it's just a question of how to better enforce um, legal selling, yep. um, regulate that. But also, I, I guess the question is, like, should should that be one of our big priorities in Colorado? That is, that is a good question. Should we be <laughs> focusing on weed? Have, have we not already answered this question? <laughs> well, yeah, but more on the... Um. Yeah, go, Julia. I, yeah, we had uh, two people text in, actually. Oh, cool. Um, Lovely. I was excited because we, we, we don't get a ton of texts in. <laughs> and so when people interact, I get really excited. Uh, <laughs> we had uh, one person say uh, their spending on weed was about 10, uh, sorry, I got confused, $1,000, a, a little over $1,000 a year. Oh, um, I would say that that's probably typical. other person said um, $200 a month. $200 a month. Okay, yeah. so, so those both about, seem fairly reasonable amounts. So, that's, so, I mean, if he's doing, you know, if he's going in for recreational, that's probably an ounce and a half a month. But if it's med- medical, I mean, that's two, two and a half ounces a month, depending on the dispensary you go to. Yeah. Um, well, I just thought I just thought that was interesting. No, that is super interesting. I mean, no, no, we certainly appreciate your feedback. It's very yeah. nice to. Thank, to, I mean, to thank like you very here. much for texting in. <laughs> I think you know, like if you ask a typical college student, how much money do you spend 
a month on alcohol, I bet it would be upwards of yeah. three hundred, four hundred dollars a month. Right. So when you see that you know marijuana can last <laughs> marijuana can last a little longer and kind of give you not the same effect because alcohol is like a depressant. Um, I guess marijuana not necessarily depressant, but you do get that maybe lackadaisical kind of don't want to do anything. Hmm. But it go it goes longer. Um, it's obviously helping Colorado as an industry and it's just in my eyes not as taboo as it was 10 years ago and no. i think that's a good thing for sure no um is that gonna wrap this up i think that was a pretty you good you got discussion. anything to say about some weed julia i don't talk to us about the pots <laughs> <laughs> i moved from i moved from texas when um right when uh marijuana was getting legalized so uh it went it was an interesting transition because then i had friends like asking me about it and mm. uh yeah i would just tell them like yeah, yeah. just like normal thing i think the last thing i'd like to say is like it's not necessarily just like bud anymore like not flour yeah, that's necessarily right. being sold uh you know like a big thing in the industry is concentrates like you know whether you get wax or and then you can go in and you can get edibles and the one thing that is helping a lot of people that is only sold at dispensaries I don't know if that's necessarily true, but CBD is helping a lot of people too. So mm. I think just the whole marijuana industry as a whole, uh, I am fully um, moving forward. I think that we need to see what the results are all around the country. Right. Even sure. um, uh, research opportunities with hemp, which is yeah. like the plant itself, but mm. the CBD levels are under a percentage. So um, which uh, allows opportunities into like textile research or um, growing into that. So I think, um, financially, it, could, it has more opportunities, um, not only recreationally with marijuana, but with other industries as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, other industries talking about talk about big pharma and the Purdue uh, Purdue company. Um, mm. They want to cut back on painkillers and opioids and all that kind of stuff. Maybe maybe CBD can help a lot of people who have discomfort Let's give that them weed. Uh, maybe yeah, I mean, yeah, Don't. not the most basic form of it, but you know, maybe certain things. Why do you have to say it like that? You just have to you have make this it sound like so subtle. Cre- You're like, "Let's give them that way." It's just it's creepy. All right. Um, I'm going to wrap up this conversation because we're actually uh, we, we don't have a ton yeah. of time left. So, um, we're going to go to a really quick break, but we will be coming back here with everyone's favorite segment, the weather. The weather. It's going to snow. <laughs> Don't give it away. You can't. Um, what the heck, Gabe? <laughs> I just feel like, yeah, just weather is a crapshoot. It's going to snow. Might snow. All right. You don't for a tornado. All right, I'm turning all of your mics off. <laughs> You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review only here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Say your own names. Yeah. Well, yeah. Come on. Duh. Hi, this is Mike, Doug, and Damon, and we're on Second Thought. Yeah, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU. We like KCSU because it itches. <laughs> Does the burning mean it's working? And welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm not even going to put JD's uh, mic on yet because he's not ready. Are you good? All right. He composed himself. He was uh, giggling a little bit too yeah, much. Yeah, that was a great promo. <laughs> Anyways, we're going to move on to weather, I we- suppose. Weather. Spoke. Weather. 
I suppose. What, is it, what does it mean? <laughs> what does it mean? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Give us the weather, meteorologist Gabe Peterson. All righty. Well, today is almost over, so you kind of know the weather, but it's a high of 55, and tonight's looking a little chilly. It's going to be in the 30s. Uh, but when you wake up tomorrow, it's going to be in the mid-40s, so it's still going to be sweater weather, and you can uh, wake up, and when you get back from class, <laughs> it's going to be 55 degrees, so it might be a little more uh, hot, and it might be you might be a little perspirated and sweating as you walk <laughs> home, but it'll be worth it. And then Thursday... Um, it's going to be partly cloudy with a high of 45. And then when you wake up in the morning, it's going to be uh, high tw- uh, 29, uh, low 30. So it's going to be chilly. Um, and it's just going to be partly cloudy all day. But it looks like there's going to be no precipitation throughout the week. So Thank when God. we come back on Thursday and we give you the weather for the weekend, I'll tell you what to expect. Yep, so you got to come back. I have a Stay question tuned. for you. At what threshold does it no longer be sweater weather what, on the I've, cold factor? No, you weren't here last week. I literally asked him that question, I think, oh, and you were not well, here. Just so refresh you This is what again? happens when Re- you... Well, yes. Refresh his memory. I would say anything under... Anything above 80 degrees is not sweater weather. So not sweater but, weather then, but then like what's wait, the next step below? You did like, not say, you said like above 70 last week. You're changing your temperatures. I just wear hoodies year round, <laughs> especially when I go into the lake in the summer and I get in the water and it's cold. I'll just throw my hoodie back on. So. <laughs> and I'm very, you guys can't see me, but I'm very uh, pale skinned. So I don't like to necessarily take my shirt off as much because I get burned. Like so I just kind of wear a full hoodie and just kind of put it over. Yeah, oh Viking person. I'm not Alrighty. Seven feet, I wish. Well, we only get. <laughs> it's almost five o'clock, so we're gonna uh, wrap it up here. Thank you so much for to our reporters for um, their wonderful work. We got uh, Raven Color, Joe Green, Bjorn Larson. Uh, those are the ones that didn't come on today. Um, Bjorn was here. Oh yeah, I guess he was here. He didn't. He didn't talk about the news though. That's he did. Write, he did write the news. Um, and thank you so much as well to John, uh, John, Joe Von Fisher, as well as Justin Michael for coming on um, for the interviews earlier today. And uh, thanks Seth Bodine, our field reporter, for thank coming you. on talking about weed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nervous laughter. Thank, thank, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, JD Layton, for coming on. Our national news correspondent. He lives here. I do. Mm-hmm. I, uh, after we get off the show, I'm going to go uh, back under the desk where I live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that what that smell is? <laughs> yeah, I, haven't, I haven't cleaned in a while. Moving Sorry. on. All right. Don't make me turn off your mic again. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Gabe Peterson, my co-host. Thank you. Um, as well as myself. Uh, thank me, Julia Battles. Thank you, why, Julia. Why are you surprised? Every time I do that. Every week. You know, I think it's every week, like, man. <sighs> get with it. You're so selfish. Of course I am. Um Anyway, thank you for joining the Rocky Mountain Review. We will be back on back on Thursday. We do the Rocky Mountain Review every Tuesday, Thursday. We do a bunch of interviews, local news, national news, sports, music, all the news. Um, if you ever want to tune in, that's 4 to 5 every Tuesday, Thursday. And then, of course, weather. I almost forgot about that. Mm-hmm. How could I forget? <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, uh, we'll see you here next Thursday. Or, sorry, this Thursday. Thursday. <laughs> Only here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. <laughs>